The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. I don't know how many of you are on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at, at Darren Latham. If you do, I'll follow back. Happy to connect with you in that media. But uh, on Twitter, one of the sites that I follow is a site that sends out the same identical tweet every single day. So every single day, I get the same identical tweet from this site. Uh, It's called the Daily Death Reminder, and this is the tweet I get every single day. You will die someday. (laughs) Every day, as I open my Twitter feed, I get that tweet. Darren, you will die someday. It's a great way to start your day, actually. It's a little, it's like reading the book of Ecclesiastes every week. It just kind of puts you in the, the, the reality hotspot, if you will. Well, if you knew that today was your last day on earth, you knew that you just have a few hours to craft and draft what will be your final words, what words would you choose? There's famous last words of famous individuals. Frank Sinatra, of course, a famous singer, his last words were, I'm losing it. Buddy Rich, a famous drummer, he died while he was in surgery. But prior to surgery, while he was on the, the operating table and the nurse was asking him, you know, what, if he was allergic to any medications, the nurse said to him, she looked down at him and she says, is there anything you can't take? And Buddy Rich looked up and said, yes, country music. He died in surgery. Those were his last words. Richard Mellon was an accomplished businessman. He was the president of Alcoa, a shipbuilding company. And he and his brother actually had this ongoing thing all through adulthood. They played a game of tag their whole life. And it's reported that as Richard was on his deathbed, he's laying there, he calls his brother Andrew over to him. Andrew leans in and Richard whispers into his ears, tag, you're it. And he died. Pistol Pete Maravich. Pete was a famous basketball player. He was playing a game of pickup basketball after he retired, just a game with his friends. And he he was feeling fine that day, but he died of a sudden uh, heart attack. And his last words, the last words Pistol Pete Maravich spoke before he died was, I feel great. David Cassidy a singer, musician, famous as a teen idol and star of the Partridge family in the 70s. David battled alcoholism most of his life. His daughter, Katie, who was at his bedside when he died this past year, she recorded his last words and she actually tweeted them. I I read it on Twitter. David Cassidy's last words were this, so much wasted time. Death. For something that we know is going to happen, we seem incredibly unprepared for it. But that's why I'm so glad that you're here, because that is where Broadway Church comes into the picture. According to the Bible, the role of a pastor is to equip Christ followers for works of service. In other words, to help you position your life to prepare for a life that's fulfilled and a life that's productive. That's what this series is actually designed to do. It's a series designed to prepare and equip you to live an abundant and a productive life. It's a series we've entitled The Healing Hotspot. 
Now, what is the healing hotspot for those who are maybe just joining this series today? Well, just as a Wi-Fi hotspot is a physical location where you can uh, obtain access to the internet, a healing hotspot is a spiritual location, a non-physical location, where you can obtain access to God's restorative power. So let these cones symbolize a physical zone, a physical Wi-Fi hotspot. Now, I realize a Wi-Fi hotspot, of course, is much larger than this. But this represents that zone in which you can access the Internet. And if you stay in this zone, you're in the, you know, the core of that healing of the, the uh, Wi-Fi hotspot. You're getting a strong Internet signal. But if you move out of this zone, the farther away you get from that hotspot, the weaker and weaker your signal is for the internet. Well, it's similar with God's healing hotspot. Think of God's healing hotspot as a term describing the strongest possible relationship connectedness between you and God. Think of God's healing hotspot as the relationship zone where your spirit and God's spirit are connecting as clearly and powerfully as possible. So when someone says to you, hey, how's your relationship with God going? The ideal response is to say, I am in the healing hotspot. Now, our challenge is this. Just like a Wi-Fi hotspot, we can experience increased or decreased uh, experience of our connectedness with the internet. In the similar way, we can experience an increased or decreased connection with God's spirit. Now, hear me. We are not talking about losing our salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how well we are experiencing our salvation. And in this series, we're seeking to learn how to remain in, or if we're outside of it, how to return to God's healing hotspot, this relationship zone. You say, well, Darren, how can I know when I'm in this relationship zone? Well, the Bible provides us with coordinates those coordinates are found in the Old Testament, that's the first half of the Bible, in a book of, called Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles 7.14 says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, God said, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. We're unpacking this passage piece by piece to learn as much as we can. In week one, a couple weeks ago, we focused in on the word if, where it says, if my people will do A, then I will do B, God says. It's a contractual statement. And we learned that first week that if we want to remain in or return to God's healing hotspot, we learned we need to recognize our role. We're not puppets. We're not observers of our lives. We live our lives, and we have to recognize our role, that we make choices, that I, have, I am as close to God as I want to be. And we learned that first week that God's not withholding from us. God is responding to us when it comes to our walk with him. Week two, last week, we focused on the next phrase, my people who are called by my name. And we learned last week that if we want to remain in or return to God's healing hotspot, we need to recognize our reality. And our reality is framed in that little phrase. We learned that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are God's creation. We are my people, God calls us. But we're more than just God's creation. We also learn that we're God's children, my people who are called by my name. 
And we learned last week that as God's child, we have special honor placed upon us and special access granted to us. And our big idea last week was no fantasy apart from Christ can match our reality in Christ. This is the greatest life you could ever live inside this zone. And that brings us to week three. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Underline that in your Bible and or on your outline. Those three words, will humble themselves. Those are the three words we're gonna focus on for the next 20 minutes. Now, notice something right off the top. God is describing and prescribing something that we, you and I, must do as Christ followers. And even as someone who's seeking God, we must humble ourselves. Every now and then I hear someone say, pray, oh God, humble me. I'm thinking, no, you don't want to pray that prayer. The Bible says we should humble ourselves. So then, how can a follower of Jesus remain in or return to God's healing hotspot? Well, you recognize your role, you recognize your reality, and as we're learning today, you choose humility. Choose humility. Well, what does it mean to choose humility? What is humility? I mean, what does it mean to be humble? First of all, let's talk about what it is not, what it isn't. As your outline says, humility isn't making less of who you are. Humility is not making less of who you are. I hear this and see this every now and then. Someone, let's say they sing a song in church or whatever, and you walk up to them in the lobby afterwards and you say, hey, great job with that solo today. And this person says, oh, no, no, I'm a terrible singer. I can't sing. I'm a worm. I'm a lousy singer. And, and if you thought it was good, that's just because God somehow supernaturally made it sound better. That's not humility. Humility isn't making less of who you are. Okay, then what is humility? Well, to answer that question, let's turn to a passage in the New Testament portion of the Bible. Near the end of the New Testament, it's the book of James. And in this passage, humility is explained by contrasting it with its opposite, with pride. It's found in James chapter four. As you're turning there, let me quickly tell you who James was. James was Jesus' brother. And initially, James thought that his brother Jesus was crazy. In fact, while Jesus walked the earth, James did not follow Jesus. He literally thought he was crazy. It's in the gospels. But after seeing his brother Jesus risen from the dead, James saw reality, and he became a follower of Jesus, and he became a leader in the early church. And in fact, James wrote this letter that we have in our hands, and it's a letter to Christ followers who were scattered throughout the world, and they were being persecuted. And James says this in uh, James chapter 4, verse 6. He says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Now, let's put these two extremes on a continuum here. Proud on one end and humble on the other. By the way, James' original letter here was written in ancient Greek. That was the universal language of the first century, like English would be today. And as your outline says, the ancient Greek word that's translated proud in this verse literally means to overshine, not to shine, but to overshine, to mega shine. To be proud is to overshine. It's not wrong to shine. Shining is good, shine on. But when you overshine, 
That's when you've crossed the line into the pride zone. Well, what does it look like to overshine? Someone says, um, hey, Darren, I like your shoes. I say, oh, thanks. They are nice, aren't they? My, my wife bought them for me. Okay, at this point, I'm not overshining. I'm fine. I'm shining. Everything's fine. Now watch as I begin to overshine. Yeah, these shoes are nice, aren't they? In fact, these shoes are the best. There's nobody in all of Broadway Church today who has shoes like my shoes. These are the greatest shoes of anybody. I've looked around at everybody as they came in today. I was hiding back up there behind the screen looking at everyone's shoes. These are the best shoes at Broadway Church. In fact, why have you stopped looking at my shoes? Keep looking at my shoes. Yes, these are fantastic shoes. And, and if you think your shoes are as good as mine, you're crazy. You're thinking your shoes aren't as good as mine, aren't you? Well, you're right. Your shoes are garbage compared to my shoes. That is overshining. Being proud is overstating your case. It's taking things beyond what they truly are. By the way, after the first service, someone tweeted at me and said, Darren, I really do like your shoes, by the way. <laughs> Have you ever met a proud person? Have you ever met someone that tends to overshine at times? Chances are you didn't like interacting with them, did you? A CEO of a Fortune 500 company pulled into a full-service gas station to get some gas. Well, then he went inside to pay, the, and when he came out, he noticed his wife engaged in a conversation with the guy who was pumping gas into their car. It turns out this wife knew the gas attendant. In fact, it turns out she dated this guy in high school before she met her husband. Well, the CEO got into the car, and the two of them drove away in silence for a moment, Feeling pretty good about himself, the CEO finally speaks up. He says, I bet I know what you're thinking, honey. Yeah, I bet you're thinking you're pretty glad you married me. A Fortune 500 CEO and not him, a gas station attendant. Wife says, actually, I wasn't thinking that at all. She says, I was thinking that if I'd married him, he'd probably be a Fortune 500 CEO and you'd be a gas station attendant. What is it about prideful people that we find so distasteful? I mean, even God finds pride distasteful. James says that God opposes the proud in this verse. Literally, in ancient Greek, God, James said, God actually goes to battle against the proud, is what he literally says. The writer of Proverbs in the Old Testament goes even further. In Proverbs 6, it says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes. Now, he goes on to, to list even more. And if you want to read the entire ugly list, you can do that on your own time. But for now, just notice what made the top of God's hate list. Haughty eyes. It literally means a proud look. It's describing a person who views the world through eyes of arrogance. God hates such an attitude. Why? Why does God hate pride so much? Maybe God hates pride so much because it appears to have been the original sin. When you look at scripture, it appears that Satan's, Lucifer's first sin was pride. He overshone. He looked at himself and said, I'm beautiful. That's not overshining, it was truth. He was a beautiful angel. But then he thought to himself, I am so beautiful, I'm more beautiful than all the others. In fact, I can arise and I'm gonna be like God. God. Oops, 
He crossed the line. And then it just overflowed into creation, that arrogance and that pride. Perhaps God hates pride so much because pride destroys everything it touches. The Bible says in Proverbs, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit comes before a fall. Pride always leaves a trail of brokenness behind it. Maybe God hates pride so much because pride is rooted in and continually fueled by lies. Now remember, pride is overshining. It's taking things beyond what they truly are. So to begin to even get into pride, you've got to lie to yourself and lie to the people around you. That's just getting into a prideful attitude. But to maintain a prideful attitude, you have to keep topping up the lies. You have to keep lying to yourself every single time, every single moment. You have to live fueled by deceit. Is it any wonder that God opposes such an attitude in life? Okay, well, that's what pride looks like. But what does humility look like? Well, as your outline says, the word James used for humble means not rising far from the ground. Not rising far from the ground. Now, is James saying that the shorter you are, the more humble you are? Now, rest easy, all of you tall people out there. James is not saying that. So what is he saying then? You're interested in hiring Mary for a position on your staff. And so you start to ask around. You say, tell me about Mary. What, what kind of a person is Mary? And someone says, Mary is a woman with both feet firmly on the ground. Now, when we say that in English, we are complimenting them. We're saying Mary is stable. Mary is dependable. Mary is a woman of sound and solid character. That's what we're saying by that phrase. Well, that's similar to the ancient word for the meaning of humble. To be humble is to not rise far from the ground. It means to live life with both feet firmly planted. It means to to have an honest perspective on life, to have a firm grasp of reality. So when you place pride and humility side by side, you can see the contrast. Being proud is overstating your case. It's taking things beyond what they truly are. But as your outline says, humility is properly acknowledging who you are. It's properly acknowledging who you are. It's looking at reality and living according to reality. Look what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 3. He said, listen, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought Don't let your feet get too far off the ground when you look at yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather, here's what you ought to do. Think of yourself with sober judgment. In other words, tell the truth about yourself. If you're good at golf, then say, yeah, I'm a pretty good golfer. If you're a good singer and someone says you sang well, say, thank you, I appreciate that. But don't think of yourself more highly, but look at yourself with sober judgment, meaning what is reality in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of us, Scripture says. So when you think about it, there's nothing more relaxing, there's nothing more natural than living a life of humility. Why? Because humility, it's just properly acknowledging who you are. It takes no effort. Humility is simply facing and telling the truth about yourself. My mother always used to say, and I hear Judge Judy say it, so Judge Judy must have met my mother sometime. 
But my mother always used to say, Darren, when you tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. And it's true. When you tell the truth, you don't have to sit and think, okay, what did I say I did last night? Oh, yeah. Because when you're always lying, you got to remember what lie you told, and then you got to tell another lie to back up that lie. And then you have to, you pile lie upon lie. It's exhausting. So I've been told. But when you tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory because you just know what happened. And according to James, that is the attitude that God endorses. James said that God is in opposition to the proud, but God shows favor to the humble. God literally said through James that God gives grace to the humble. That's literally what that word show favor means. It means to give grace. Do you hear what James is saying, folks? God shows favor to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. James is saying, to pull it back to Chronicles in our hotspot, he's saying, when you humble yourself, when you choose humility, you are positioning yourself to receive the restorative power of God. He gives grace to the humble. James is saying, when you live with an attitude of humility, you are living in God's healing hotspot where the power of God flows, where the grace of God is poured out. So where are you on this continuum? Which zone do you tend to live in more often than not? Are you living a life of pride or a life of humility? Are you overshining, always polishing your life? Are you pretending to be someone you're not? By the way, it takes a whole lot of extra energy to overshine. And the irony is, get this, I thought about this this week. When you are overshining, when you overshine, you're actually living in the darkness. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. That's not what you want. That's not what God wants. God wants to pour grace and healing into your life. And there's only one place where this downloading of grace can occur, and that's God's healing hotspot, this relationship zone. We say, Darren, if I've stepped away from that healing hotspot, is there a way to get back in? There is. Second Chronicles 7.14 says you can. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if you want back into God's light, you need to abandon, abandon your proud posture and choose a posture of humility. Okay, practically speaking, how can a person do that? Practically speaking, how can a person move from pride to humility? Well, let's go back to James chapter four because James gives us some simple and practical advice in James four. Starting at James uh, chapter four, verse 13, we read this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this or that city. We're going to spend a year there, carry on business and make money. James says, oh, hold on, time out, hit the pause button. James says, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, here's what you ought to say, James says. If it's the Lord's will then we'll live and we'll do this and do that. According to James, if you want to humble yourself, you need to, first of all, acknowledge your limitations. Acknowledge your limitations. Now listen, folks. 
James isn't saying it's wrong to plan. That's not what he's teaching here. I have calendars filled with events. My life is planned week by week, day by day, month by month to the end of 2019 right now. I could tell you what sermon I am preaching on this Sunday next year. He's not saying it's wrong to plan. It's not wrong to make plans, but James is simply pointing out that our plans are thinner than the paper they're printed on. That's all he's saying. I can plan months and years ahead, but the truth is I really have no idea what will happen tomorrow. Actually, James is being modest here. He's understating the truth. The truth is I don't even know what's gonna happen today. Hey, the next 10 seconds are a mystery to me. I have notes on the page in front of me, but it is entirely possible that I may not get a chance to speak these words. It's totally within the realm of possibility. In fact, that possibility became very real to me this week. One of my best friends died suddenly. I got the call this week from his daughter, Darren, Ken, my dad, her, her, her dad, Died three hours ago, sudden heart attack. You remember Ken, he spoke here at Broadway last week, last, uh, last year. Ken's big idea was, for this we have Jesus. Remember, he was my guest, my friend from England who spoke. Ken died suddenly this week. One of my best friends, known him for decades. Went to bed, died. After preaching on Sunday. We are incredibly uninformed when it comes to the future. We have no idea what will happen next. When Ken laid his head on his pillow, he didn't know he would never raise his head from that pillow. He's in his 50s. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, James points out. And not only are we incredibly ignorant, we're also incredibly fragile. The truth is, like Pistol Pete Maravich or like my good friend Ken, we could be saying, I feel great one minute and drop dead the next minute. What's your life, James asks. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Like our hazer machines that spread the haze in the services. It's gone now. It was here a minute ago. James says, that's your life. You're a mist. So when you pull it all together, this is the truth about my life. Here it is. I am entirely ignorant about the next second of my existence, and I am incredibly fragile regarding the stability of my existence. So stand back, world, and watch me roar. Kind of sounds silly, doesn't it, when you put it that way? It's hard to be proud when your feet are firmly planted on the ground. It's hard to overshine when you acknowledge your limitations. So what can a person do to move from pride to humility? Well, first, acknowledge your limitations. And secondly, acknowledge God's lordship. Instead, James says, here's what you ought to say when you make your plans. If it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or do that. Now, he's not saying that every time you make a plan, you have to publicly say, if it's the Lord's will. Having said that, I'll often do that. In an email or in a conversation, when someone says, can you be here, do this? I'll often say, yep, Lord willing, I'll be there. Now, by saying that, I am not trying to provide a way to sneak out. 
But what I am consciously saying to myself, because I'm very aware of this truth, I'm consciously trying to remind myself how fragile I am and how not in control of my life I ultimately am. I'm trying to acknowledge consciously God's lordship in my life. His knowledge, his power, his sovereignty. I will make my plans and I will do my best to fulfill those plans, but I ultimately acknowledge it's all Lord willing. He can change the direction of my life in a heartbeat. It's been said that, one author put it this way, in God we come up against something which in every aspect is immeasurably superior to us. But he said, as long as we're proud, we cannot know God. Why? Because a proud person is someone who is always looking down on others. So you can't see something that's above you when you're constantly looking down. Folks, to enter God's kingdom, you have to bow to God's superiority. But pride refuses to bow. So let's wrap it up. What have we learned today? If we want to access God's restorative and healing power, we need to choose humility. We need to humble ourselves. What does that look like? It looks like properly acknowledging who you truly are. Humility is living grounded in reality. Humility is living according to the truth. And we learn that God shows favor to those who live this way. We learn that God pours grace and blessing and power upon the humble. If you want to live in God's healing hotspot, you must choose humility. How does one choose and then live in humility? It's simple. You do this by acknowledging your limitations and acknowledging God's lordship. Which brings us to today's big idea. Here's the summary of everything we've learned today in this one simple sentence. To be where God is, you must be who you are. If you want to be where God is, you've got to be who you are. Because the moment you stop being who you are, you are living a fantasy. You're living deception. You're deceiving yourself and others. If you want to be where God is, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to live according to reality. You've got to be who you are. Folks, social media today fuels the serpent of pride. It's all about elaborately staged selfies, selectively chosen highlights, deceptively described events. Social media isn't, for the most part, about sharing the life that you're actually living. No, social media is about portraying the life you wish you were living. But God isn't calling us to be someone we're not. It's actually quite the opposite. God is calling us to humble ourselves, meaning simply be ourselves and live according to the truth. Because to be where God is, you've got to be who you are. God will bless you. He wants to bless you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, as long as you Humble yourself. God wants to bless you. God will bless you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, as long as you acknowledge the truth about yourself. To be where God is, you gotta be who you are. Please hear me. 
When you confess your sins to God, you're not telling him something he doesn't already know. I've had people ask me that over the years. Darren, why would I confess my sins to God? It's like I got away with them and I'm tattling on myself. No, no, folks, listen. God knows all things. So he already knows what you've done. Then why am I telling him? Because the word confess means to say the same thing as. It means to agree with God. Some people think God's up there and God says, you did what? You're kidding. I take my eyes off you once to check out the Middle East and you do that? No, it doesn't work that way, folks. God knows all things. He's everywhere present. When you confess your sins to him, you're agreeing with him about what he already knows. You are aligning yourself with the truth. You're humbling yourself. You don't have to hide from God. You don't have to polish your reality in an effort to appear to be someone you're not. Hear this. You can be yourself in the presence of God. You can be yourself in the presence of God. You can relax in the presence of God. He knows you. He loves you. Do you need fresh grace? In your heart, are you desperate for healing? In his presence, you will find the grace and the power that you need. But to access his presence, you must first humble yourself. And that means acknowledge your limitations and acknowledge his lordship. Because to be where God is, you've got to be who you are.